Hello, my name is Raj Mehta, and welcome back to Richard Lehman Discusses EBM. How are you today, Richard? Uh, I'm fine, thank you, uh, Raj. But I think today it should be Raj Mehta Discusses Overdiagnosis, uh, because you have a list of things that you want to cover. And um, I have been in this field of groups to do with diagnosis, overdiagnosis. I've been to BMJ conferences devoted to overdiagnosis. And I really struggle with trying to define this area and see how we can actually communicate the issues best with patients. So I'm glad you're bringing a fresh mind to it. Overdiagnosis is certainly a very tricky topic, one that's kind of exploded after 2010 in the scientific literature and in discussions, and for good reason. Um, I think I'll begin by providing a definition for overdiagnosis, and then we can delve into some of the challenges with it. So narrowly defined, overdiagnosis occurs when people without symptoms are diagnosed with a disease that ultimately will not cause them to experience either symptoms or an early death. So the definition is pretty simple, but the challenge is identifying overdiagnosis because applying those criteria and looking at our clinical practice or the various things we do in medicine, it's really hard sometimes to put a finger on what is overdiagnosis and what isn't. And I think that leads to a lot of the complexity and uncertainty and ambiguity in trying to deal with this challenge. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a reasonable starting point, though I must say I think overdiagnosis can apply to people with symptoms as well. Um, so typically, um, if you take the case of somebody with neck pain or low back pain, they go to a certain type of chiropractor and the chiropractor says that you've got a misalignment of these and these vertebrae and then starts them on a long course of treatment on the basis of um, a, a, an entirely uh, arbitrary diagnosis uh, which can't be confirmed or indeed refuted. So, um, and I think a lot of that has gone on in medicine over the, over the centuries. Um, in fact, most diagnoses uh, reached by doctors were reached in rich patients with symptoms, um, and a lot of them were totally imaginary um, <laughs> before the, um, the coming of proper diagnostic technology. And now with too much diagnostic technology, although you can argue there can't be such a thing, we diagnose on the basis of what we see on, on scans and on tests, and that provides an entirely new range of overdiagnoses. Uh, so I think it's slightly more complicated than you asserted, but let's let's go from there anyway. I think that's great. So I should clarify that I was reading a definition that has been published as posted by BMJ and also on our American side by USPTFS in the past. Uh, but I have to agree with you, Richard, that the, the first challenge is that even that definition is a bit difficult because for those of us in primary care, many patients have symptoms. And the problem with definitions is that they can be quite black and white, but reality is more nuanced. So, you know, what does it mean to be asymptomatic? Patients have mild symptoms. When we exaggerate their symptoms or the patients do from their subjective perspective, or or we create that uncertainty and, and try to create certainty out of it when it isn't there. Um, and I, I think stepping outside just general medicine and the primary care perspective, 
my main concern with overdiagnosis is diagnosing people erroneously with mild symptoms um, that may be self-limiting, aren't going to cause problems, and I erroneously might think it's going to create worsening of symptoms or it may affect their overall health in a way to affect their mortality and morbidity, and I may be wrong in that. And that's a big element of overdiagnosis that I think is sometimes uh, not as well studied because it's a very difficult thing to measure. Yes, I think we're we're circling around the topic as we have to really because I don't think there's any direct way in and I don't think there's any single form of overdiagnosis. Um, some of overdiagnosis is a, a well-intentioned uh, desire to spot things early and we spot them so early that they would never have turned into any disease at all. And that's because we don't understand the natural progression of a lot of disease. Um, and particularly, we don't understand necessarily the, the progression of things like imaging findings or even histology. So we do know, to, for instance, that uh, the so-called carcinoma in situ of, of cervix isn't actually carcinoma that's going to spread and develop in most cases, but it, it will in some. And so we capture a whole group of women, uh, give them this terrifying label of having a carcinoma and um, excise it. And they all feel grateful for that, I'm sure. Um, but in fact, some of them will go on to have gynae problems as a result of that. Uh, uh, and in circumstances where the lesion would never have developed. And the same to do with breasts. Those are two um, in situ diagnoses for, for women. Um, but equally, it can apply to um, men and uh, both sexes. If, if a thyroid nodule, for instance, is discovered, pathologists yeah. to, uh, to differentiate between a progressive cancer or something that looks as though it might possibly and so you get a great deal of overtreatment on the basis of good intentions. That's a, those are great points and there are three things that kind of go along with overdiagnosis. You have concerns about overtreatment and perhaps even overdosing. Um, I'm going to make a suggestion, Richard, on the fly here uh, to avoid semantics. I'm going to suggest that we use the narrow definition of overdiagnosis for our asymptomatic patients and perhaps a wider one in clinical practice to include even symptomatic patients. And so in the literature, when you have the narrow definition, as you've pointed out, uh, cancer screening is perhaps the most common example we see. And this challenge where there's this probabilistic sense of where is this risk factor of this label we're creating of carcinoma in situ? What is the probability that that will actually cause potential harm to someone and it's hard to know. And in most cases, it won't. And a small number will. So then what do you do? Is it overdiagnosis? How do you set that threshold? And it creates a lot of tricky aspects of it. And from my perspective, I don't think there's a good answer. But I think it's important for all of us to be aware of that. Uh, and it's an important part of why shared decision making needs to be involved with patients and make sure they're informed as best we can to engage in the decisions and not to just have it dictated to everyone to do it the same way. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything particularly challenging there or, or uh, on the fly, uh, as you put it. I think that those are perfectly reasonable um, ways of framing the situation. Um, and I think it, it, it but it, it, it does only cover part of the field, I suppose. The um, There's another part of 
overdiagnosis, and I haven't thought yet through whether this falls within your definition. Asymptomatic people, yes, asymptomatic people will have liver scans and be told that they have non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease. Now, is that a disease if it if it involves uh, up to a, a 50 percent of the adult population? Do they all go and have biopsies and all regular fibro scans or whatever? It, 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 it they most people with that diagnosis are left in a bit of a limbo about it. And um, it's the same with various things like um, Barrett's esophagus, for instance, if you, someone looks down your esophagus and you, you may or may not be symptomatic, something's led them to look down your esophagus and they give it this terrifying precancerous label, um, whereas in fact the, the, the likelihood of um, uh, or the extra risk of developing esophageal cancer in such patients is, isn't actually all that greater than, than the population normal. Um, so we have all these th these dilemmas and no clear answers because, as I was saying, we're, we're motivated by good intentions, um, but we are scaring patients. And to say that we, we've got to wave a magic wand over this and somehow stop it is very problematic for me. And whenever I've been in these groups, discussion groups, you do tend to get people who say, oh, we're over-medicalizing life altogether and everybody's being labeled as ill, whereas they ought to be able to get on with their lives. Yes, that's true to an extent. But yeah, hey, what are you going to do about it? We'll have to come back to that topic of whether we need to stop the supposed overdiagnosis, because that's a tricky one. What I will add to that is I think a large driver of this of modern medicine is technology, because especially for the asymptomatic patients, technology with more sensitive tests, with more sensitive findings on imaging and pathology and scopes, um, we're finding a lot more of these things where we incidentally find things we might not have seen before on imaging. You pick up more precursors to cancer or it becomes probabilistic, um, and, and it creates dilemmas and challenges for physicians because we have to inform patients of these findings. Um, and that kind of puts us in a difficult position that's not necessarily always of our own making. Yeah, but I'm talking too much. You've you've got uh, a list of ideas there. I'm already digressing um, around the edges of those. Tell, tell me what uh, other issues you'd like to discuss. So I think a couple of things to, to kind of go through. As I mentioned, technology is a huge driver of this. That's a more newer one. I think more classical problems dealing with overdiagnosis are things about fears. You know, sometimes physicians might fear lawsuits or harm. And then just a the psychology of it. I think sometimes we get burned as physicians. We miss something and we have a drive to sometimes find it to prevent bad outcomes. Um, and that can, out of good intentions, put us in situations where maybe we're pushing diagnostic borders and making it part of the asymptomatic screening and picking up of things also based on this belief of early detection. And that can also be philosophically problematic. And I think we have to kind of look at the underpinnings of what we mean. I think fundamentally, the challenge with this is the term overdiagnosis itself, because as medicine moves to increasingly understanding its probabilistic nature, understanding the uncertainty and nuance of it, the idea that you can just have a binary label that this is overdiagnosis or this isn't is going to be very, very challenging. And I, and that puts us in a position where we're creating something we have to try and stop, 
rather than recognizing that it's not one binary thing, it's a complexity of things. And depending on the nature of what's causing it, you have to kind of like figure it out itself. As with any disease, right? If you have a syndrome with multiple etiologies, there's not necessarily one solution. We have to look at etiology itself and kind of navigate it. So for asymptomatic things, we have to navigate how we set thresholds for populations. For technology, we have to navigate how we're going to deal with things on the side. For overly sensitive tests, we have to be careful about when we decide to apply them, when we don't apply them, and so on. Yeah, uh, I, I think that that's a very good um, summing up of, of the dilemma that we face now with uh, increasingly effective medicine, increasingly uh, detecting lesions, people wearing monitoring devices, etc. And um, we lose sight or we can lose sight of the fact that we're all in a state of pre-something. And the state of pre-everybody pre is pre-death, of course. Yeah. And um, so to what extent do we accept that we, we are mortal and have to die of something? At what point do we cut off? from looking for things that can be ameliorated and of course that's a deep philosophical question which we can't possibly answer here or anywhere else for that matter um, but there are a lot of subdivisions of pre and the typical ones are pre-hypertension and um, pre-diabetes they're the ones that are most talked about and again it's just a matter of threshold setting isn't it and at what point do you in, in a continuously distributed variable, do you, do you draw the line, say this is going to be treated? And um, I don't think we that will ever be definitively established. Uh, but society may agree that rather than even do that, we try and prevent cardiovascular disease by giving everybody statins or by giving everyone a polypill. And that's not overdiagnosis as such. Some would argue it's over medicalization, over treatment. Um, it's just a matter of, of whether you define cardiovascular risk as a diagnosis or just something that we all have varying degrees of. So um, the the debate whirls around and tends to be decided on matters of personal philosophy. And another interesting factor that often comes up almost always in in the militant groups on this subject is that doctors are incentivized to make diagnoses and give treatments and the bad person or the, the bad entity behind all this is always identified as pharma big pharma or industry is the other way that people put it and the industry includes of course device industry and, and detection industry and scaring people industry and hospital managers want more activity and doctors who want to fill up their clinics. So um, the baddies are scattered all around us. And are we really surrounded by a whole lot of malignant people who want to take dollars from us? Or is this just something that we have to live with because people are like that. People will accept different levels of risk and some people will be very grateful for their overdiagnoses and love their doctors for, for giving them lots and lots of different treatments and seeing them often. 
in in fairness, I suspect this may be a bigger challenge for us in the U.S. and the U.K., where certainly financial incentives for pharmacists, for physicians, for hospitals are very different than it is for NHS. Um, and no one, I think, or the vast majority do not work out of ill intentions. But nevertheless, there are subtle ways that our decision making can be biased. I I think this is a great transition, Richard, because the the next step I want to talk about is going from that narrow definition of asymptomatic asymptomatic patient to the wider one you suggested of you know patients with symptoms that we still overdiagnose. And I think that's a that's one that uh, practically I deal with every day as a PCP because the script of a patient coming to me with symptoms is that. I have an illness, please give me a disease label, diagnose what's happening and help me get better. And it's very challenging because there's diagnostic uncertainty and we've talked about the process of decision-making of making a diagnosis. But many times there will be mild things that are self-limiting and I may put in a diagnosis of greater severity or or of more value per se than what may actually be underlying that patient. And I may be diagnosing a higher severity when it's milder. Um, I may be putting a label that offers a harsher prediction than what may actually be happening. You know, how do we navigate that as providers? How do we work against the bias that we worry we're going to miss something? So we just look for the worst case scenario or just a sense of that patient really coming to us, wanting them to tell us that this is the problem, even though we're not sure that's what's really happening. Yes. I. I um, so we're really drifting more towards a kind of, I don't know, transactional understanding of, of the term um, in, in the way that it involves the thought processes and presumptions of doctors on the one hand and patients perceiving problems on the other hand. Um, and um, it, it, there, isn't, there isn't a sort of knife-like instrument to to separate overdiagnosis from the simple matter of talking to people and trying to explain back to them in terms that they understand and that they agree with what what might be going on uh, and i think this is very much the case with psychiatric diagnosis for, mm -hmm. for the main part apart from the the major psychoses we have a very vague understanding of where the definitions of depression, grief, melancholy, um, burnout, and so on, all these categories that we use quite freely, you know, where do they, how do they intermingle? Where does one begin? And above all, you know, we're always thinking of our prescribing pattern, whether to you know, write a prescription or um, we're thinking of our psychiatric colleagues and thinking, well, perhaps this is one for them. Um, and so uh, I think if you want to look for vague diagnoses, you obviously you do look at, in, in the um, DSM volumes and, right. and work out, you know, was homosexuality overdiagnosed in the past? Probably not. It was probably grossly underdiagnosed, but it, it was called an illness then, which of course <laughs> right. we would, most of us, strongly contest now. And a lot of things that were sort of moral feebleness was a very great, it was a common diagnosis in the 1930s. Um, and now, 
where does attention deficit disorder begin and end? You know, is, is it um, what's the natural limit of anxiety? Um, how how tearful should one be two years after one's wife's died? You know, these are not questions that you can really answer. And so overdiagnosis in that respect may may consist in giving a, a label that simply um, justifies the, the the prescription of drugs or the beginning of a course of um, psychotherapy or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I, I just thought I'd throw that into the mix while I'm thinking about it. Um, perhaps it doesn't apply so much to the rest of medicine. I, no, I think actually very much it does because so the act of diagnosis creates labels and sometimes we don't even necessarily feel the need to do it, but the way the medical system works is that there needs to be a documented trail of labels and diagnosis to justify perhaps the money we're spending to do different treatments and so on. And so we end up doing it, and that's just part of the practice of medicine, the diagnosis. And I think most of us understand there's a degree of error there, and that if you look back at that, you know, there's going to be issues with just measuring all these diagnoses and saying, oh, you have X number of this or X number of that, because what's really happening in that patient room can be so nuanced and different from each clinician-patient interaction. I think overall, though, you know, coming back to the conversation we're having, this brings me back personally to one of the challenges I have with overdiagnosis, which is that not just that it's so difficult to define, but that it's too broad to be meaningful by itself. So you provided this question in the beginning about what should we do about overdiagnosis, I don't think we should do anything other than just be skeptical about what overdiagnosis means. I don't think there needs to be this huge rush personally to say this needs to be stopped or that needs to be stopped. Rather, I think we have to be more articulate about specific issues we're having. Are we worried about asymptomatic screening? Are we worried about the oversensitivity of certain tests that we're using? Are we worried about expanding disease diagnoses? And just you know, work on those on an individual level. And then also recognizing that on a wider level, when we're talking about patients with symptoms and varying severity, this is just the challenge in nature of medicine that we've had for a very, very long time. Yeah, um, I, I'd agree. And I think it would be nice for our listeners, probably, if we got back onto more um, uh, firm ground, if you like, or easily definable conditions and, um, and maybe some solutions, because the... Um, Evidence is that certain societies rank conditions in different ways from others um, and that certain conditions have been uh, the subject of an enormous increase in diagnosis without any increase, uh, without any decrease in mortality. Mm -hmm. And so um, if they really, if you really were catching them early, uh, and doing patients good, that should be reflected in the population statistics, and it isn't. And classic examples of that um, are melanoma uh, as a result of, of increased skin checks uh, and uh, thyroid ultrasounds for palpable or even impalpable thyroid nodules followed by excision of those nodules. Uh, and in those cases, I think it can be subjected to scientific debate or at least flagged up as an issue. And once you've flagged it up as an issue, you can then start considering 
Are the diagnostic modalities right here? Are our definitions right? Can AI help us to differentiate? Can, can we find better ways of histology or ultrasound interpretation, which is actually going to stop us taking out skin samples from, from numerous people with, with borderline moles or extracting lumps from people's necks, which are never going to do them any harm? And can we can we stop that happening by a, an earlier and better diagnostic tool? Um, so I think there there are you know quite definite and distinct discrete issues that we can identify. Uh, whereas if we talk about all the psychiatric diagnoses that have been fashionable over the years, then it becomes very difficult to, to sort of <laughs> discern patterns. But there may be maybe if. If AI tools, large language modeling gets very good at analyzing people's ways of expressing things, then they will find subsets that are more suitable for certain forms of treatment. We have to believe in the future because it's coming whether we like it or not. I appreciate your optimism for the future, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it comes a bit uneasily to me, doesn't it? <laughs> not what I'm reputed for. Oh, so this is uh, this is great because if we're going to be specific about areas of overdiagnosis where we can have good conversations and hopefully areas of improvement, you know, number one would be in our area of population health with screening, cancer screening, concerns for overdiagnosis, and the hope that if we have better tests and better algorithms of when to apply screening, when to use it, that we can perhaps reduce some of this overdiagnosis or minimize unnecessary harm in patients who would otherwise win well while trying to catch those who might have been high risk and benefit from a earlier diagnosis. And I, I certainly think there is some room for optimism that we can refine and improve those practices. I think a lot of it is going to be, as you point out, dependent on using larger amounts of statistics and larger data, perhaps with AI assistance and algorithms to, to kind of identify which individuals are higher risk and use that as well as hopefully better modalities of technology for, for diagnosing some of these things. I'm sure everyone would love for something that could improve upon how mammography works and how sensitive and specific it is and so on. I'm also hopeful that like a lot of things like incidentalomas, things we pick up by random on chest CT and stuff like that, if we can ever get to a, a future where we have AI algorithms helping us with imaging scans and helping radiologists with better decisions and identifying things that we, we can have more than just expert opinion about how to manage these problems. So I, I, I agree there are areas that there's promise. There are some though, as you point out, which are hard. Uh, ultimately, how we define definition is not a computer, it's, it's us as humans and our consensus. And can we create definitions that are not too wide, but, but narrow enough that we can have some consistency and reproducibility and uh, the psychiatry is a great example of that. And perhaps that we just need to go back and do more old-fashioned clinical trials and show reproducibility and make it happen. So, And then, of course, epidemiology changes, diseases change. So what was true and common 10, 15, 20 years ago may not be the same things we have 20 years from now. So we have to be aware of that and change with the times. So... What haven't we covered, uh, Raj, that you would like us to talk about? Because we are getting to the end of our usual time, and I don't want to weary our listeners too much. But So, Richard, you had mentioned to me that you've been in some of these committees and you've had difficulty with 
coming to terms about making these definitions and kind of what to do about this problem. So I was hoping that maybe you could offer some insight from your experiences. Uh, when did you first become aware of this term overdiagnosis and do you agree with some of the naysayers or people's concerns about this over the years? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's it's a very personal one and, and um, depends on me having a better memory than perhaps I do. Um, <laughs> they, uh, I think it was probably, it, it, it dawned on me very gradually. Um, I suppose it goes back 25 years when uh, I started looking at the diagnostics of heart failure and um, the label that was given to patients with this condition, which seemed to extend all the way back to um, asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction, as it was called. It was simply meaning that there's a there's a natural distribution curve um, for the left ventricular ejection fraction. And some people were arguing that we should therefore measure the LVEF in all the population and put people on ACE inhibitors. Now, there's absolutely no evidence that asymptomatic uh, LVEF um, uh, um, of a, uh, below, say, 40 needs treatment, lifelong treatment with ACE inhibitors. This was pure extrapolation. Then I got on to di diabetes and all the various ways in which people were trying to push the threshold for pe calling people diabetic downwards. And if you look at the comparisons between them, they vary enormously. And what are we doing anyway? Um, or everybody really should have the same advice, which is to lose weight, except for those diabetics who are not overweight, and they actually are a very high-risk group, although there are some type 2s, as, as currently defined, uh, have normal weight, and, and they have a bad prognosis. So um, there are clearly threshold and category issues here and all the time I was becoming aware that guideline committees were proliferating and that they were dominated by people with either a financial or an academic interest in expanding their field and um, getting more funding for it and one of the ways to do that is to scare um, people into thinking that this is a very common and serious condition that needs early intervention. So I came at it from a very um, almost cynical view, really, that a lot of modern diagnosis is driven simply by specialist interest groups and by pharma. Um, uh, over the years, actually, I've, I've, as you'll gather from this chat, I've modified that view somewhat. And yet it does have some um, relevance today, um, probably quite a lot of relevance. Um, but I, I also see that we can't lay these problems before the public and expect to be understood. People who have had cancer, as they understand it, diagnosed early, are usually profoundly grateful and think that their lives have been saved by that. And who are we to tell them that, oh, no, that was probably just, you know, it was going to go away on its own anyway. 
it's not a, it's not a tale that you can um, uh, get people to listen to very very easily. So I think it's it, it, overdiagnosis has come to mean this cluster of things to me, um, perhaps more so in the last 10 years since books have been written about it by friends of mine. Um, and yet I think that the, it's probably a, a field where we can talk about it amongst ourselves, but not expect to find agreement. What we should try and find are soluble problems that are, that can be addressed, as you say, by clinical trials. And these include trials of diagnostic modalities as well as trials of, of interventions. Wow, that was a wonderful recap. That was very lovely. And I, I think to some degree reflects my own transition on this topic, because we begin with a certain perspective of what we see, and then I think over time, it's good to see your views evolving. Um, it was really interesting to hear like your concerns from your clinical practices like 20, 25 years ago, and then over time appreciating that, you know, the patient's perspective of this, especially with the cancer uh, screening items, is is so key to engaging and understanding that there's there's a nuance and a balance to this, and it it makes it harder. And, I had never considered that side that this is more of an internal diagnosis. It really is. We're not really discussing with patients the nature of overdiagnosis. Of course, I'm sure they also have their concerns with overlabeling and so on. Good. Well, I think we can end on that note then. And um, it's been a very interesting discussion with you, uh, Raj, because it, it has made me think about my past just now actually out of the blue um, <laughs> how i got to where where i am and it's also made me consider where actually i am um and i so i don't have any take-home messages for listeners because i think they've got to form their own take-home messages and i think everything is actually going to change a lot due to ai i know i keep saying this it's becoming <laughs> a bit of a, a broken record on this but um it, it it is and um and the diagnosis that we focus on today and that we all see are in seeming agreement about may seem a, a little bit foolish in in 20 years time i keep i used to say 100 years time but now i'm shortening that um I might just be around by then, although I'm not sure I want to be. Um, I'd be 93, but um, and we'll still be uh, doing podcasts. It'll be fun. I'll be doing podcasts with you just for the fun of it, because I, you know, it'll it'll give me some entertainment in my um, my, my nursing home um, when when you're a prof in um, Harvard or wherever. Okay, um, so I'm going to just. I, I'm just going to go off for a summary and then I'll sign off here. So I think this is a great discussion. I appreciate, you know, the published narrow definition of overdiagnosis. Those patients without symptoms diagnosed with the disease that will not cause symptoms or not cause early death. And then, of course, practically the more wider definition of even with patients who have symptoms, given diagnosis that ultimately won't cause symptoms or early death. Um, I think the main ones are the more narrow definitions, population health, dealing with screening, detecting over a diagnosis, especially in cancer, um, better technology, more sensitive tests, dealing with things with insulinolomas, with radiology, and so on, widening definitions, and then, of course, the more nuanced areas where patients have symptoms, and especially with your examples in psychiatry, the boundaries of diagnosis, and when we apply labels and 
managing severities and then over time lowering thresholds of what we define as a disease and the pros and the cons and the benefits. And the biggest challenges from the patient's perspective is because if they ultimately they find value and gain from this, gain from this, uh, it's hard for us to argue against it in some ways. So, all right. Thank you, Richard. Cheers, Ed. Lovely. Bye-bye. All right.